All right. For the last, what, five weeks, six weeks, for the Bible Study Exercise podcast series, we have been working on a study of fear. We've got about another week, maybe two weeks to go. And last week, because today starts the new week of, of Bible study, um, last week, we were, the text of Scripture that we've been looking at is Matthew chapter 14. In the series so far, we've worked on Psalm 33, Romans chapter 8, 1 John 3 and 4, Matthew 1 and 2, and Luke 1 and 2, looking at all of those passages uh, and how they relate to the subject of fear. Um, Also for the Bible study exercise, I gave everyone the thematic method of Bible study to come up with six questions related to fear and then find their answers in Scripture, and there's uh, different people working on that. And so people are still working on that. Obviously, the curriculum is available as well. But we started on Matthew 14, and when we... When we first started Matthew 14, I was like, okay, this is going to be this is going to be interesting because of the way most pastors handle Matthew 14. I feel like that they kind of the text is just a launching pad where we can really talk about ourselves. It almost becomes an allegory so that we can talk about ourselves. And I, and so I decided in our study of Matthew 14 that I would just choose the first random sermon I could come up with and then review that. So I picked a sermon to review it. That took three, four hours of review, and that was the most tragic, train wreck, messed up, confused sermon I've ever heard in my entire life. And and what is even crazy, even though the text was Matthew 14, the pastor never read Matthew 14, which was even more bizarre, but it was crazy. But in, so after I went through that review, I said, okay, I'm going to do a reset on Matthew 14 because I'm going to try to figure this out. And the more I read Matthew 14, the more perplexed I have become by the, by the section of Scripture. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to kind of work on Matthew 14, because I think it's relevant for a lot of reasons. Uh, today is 2023, uh, the first day of 2023, and we obviously know that whenever you begin a new year, what is the one thing you know about every new year? What's that one thing that's absolutely dogmatically a fact at the beginning of every new year. Well, the fact is, we never know what's going to happen in that new year, right? Okay, we never know. They, there'll be things that are good. There'll be things that are bad. There'll be wonderful days, horrible days, and there'll be a lot of things that we face that can create a sense of Fear, worry, anxiety, dread, depression, and all kinds of negative things. We can all agree with that, right? There's every year, there, there's sometimes maybe the year goes pretty well, but typically there's, there's always these constant, you never know, right? You never know from day to day what's going to happen. And since we've been studying the concept of fear, I thought, well, then let's deal, do a little bit of study on fear using Matthew 14, um, to kind of, well, hopefully give us a biblical perspective as we go into a new year. So we'll make it relevant in that way. But the bottom line is, I just don't understand this story. Okay, that's the bottom line. I just don't understand the story. So I'm just using this as an excuse to have another hour to talk about it. Because today I have to introduce the next text for the next week's study. Because I could spend probably the rest of my life on this story I never figure it out. But go Matthew chapter 14. If you have a Bible, open it up. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 33. You know the story. You know the story. But we'll read it and then we'll, I'm going to show you how we're going to approach it. All right. Matthew chapter 14. Let's start in verse 22. Everybody ready? Here we go. And straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. I think that's possibly an important verse, but, well, you'll see why. All right, Verse 23, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. Or a better translation could be, It is a ghost! They think it's a ghost, and they are cry out in what? Fear. fear. They cry out in 
fear. There is the first reference to fear. Fear, there's, there's account, uh, 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 the fear account number one, right? The first account of fear number one. Just keep that in mind, all right? But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him, and this is the most confusing thing I've ever heard in my entire life, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. There is fear number two. We have the account of fear number one. What was the first account of fear? The disciples thinking they saw a ghost. What is fear number two? Peter seeing the reality of the storm outside of the boat, and then he is afraid. All right, so two accounts of fear. Can we agree that there are two accounts of fear? All right, I, I believe that there's two different accounts of fear. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him, and said unto, unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. And they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now, you have probably heard 50,000 sermons on this. If you listen to sermons on a regular basis, I can't even tell you how many I've heard. What is the basic template for preaching this passage? If you were, if you were to take all the sermons you've heard on this passage, what is the typical way it is preached? And please tell me you listen to sermons. Okay, all right. Okay. You don't have a template in mind? Okay, that's that's not good. Okay, this is like this has been preached a million times. All right, it goes basically something like this. All right, here's this story about Jesus, the disciples, and Peter. But in reality, the way we preach this is Jesus, the disciples, and Peter, it really becomes a story about whom? Us. It's about us, right? And so the storms are not actual storms. The storms are what? The troubles in life. See, good. Bobby's heard enough preaching. Okay. The troubles of life. And so what we really need to learn from this is that if we will have the right kind of faith, we can do what? We can walk through the storms of life. We can walk on top of them. We can walk through them. And we can be victorious. But sometimes... We see the storms instead of seeing Jesus, and then we sink. Right? Now, I understand why preachers do that. I mean, what, what, I mean because we, we, whenever we preach, we feel like we've got to take the text, and we, what's our, according to mo, the way most preachers preach, that the, their first goal is to do what in preaching? I've got to give some kind of application, make it relevant to the people. And, and, and sometimes it can destroy the text. Now, I'm not saying that there's everything, that everything about that is wrong. I'm just saying we have to first just try to understand it. And the story just makes no sense. It's just weird. The whole story is just weird to me. It makes no sense in so many ways. So I, if I was to ask you, or if you want, you can just write it down on paper, and then maybe I'll, maybe, or maybe I'll ask you now. If you were to summarize what you think the main point of this story is, what would you think the main point of the story is? What would you classify the main point of this story? All right, so you think the main point of the story is that Peter's need for faith, okay? All right, trust, okay? What, 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 what do we got? Come on, I, I want to hear everyone's thoughts. Okay, nobody else is able to walk on water, okay? All right, so faith. Okay. Okay. So what do we feel? Main, main point of the story, like if you were to summarize, if someone was like, what's the point of that story? Let me just help you out. Whenever you read your Bible, okay, and ever you read anything, you should always stop and ask yourself, what's the main point of this story, all right? And, and we already know we have two major categories we usually when we're trying to figure out the main point of the story, right? Is the story descriptive or is the story prescriptive? That's always important, right? 
So is the main point here describing something or is it prescribing something? It's almost always preached as prescribing instead of describing, right? I mean, that's just a fact, right? And it prescribes what? Have more faith so you can walk on water. Not actual water. You can walk on physical or metaphorical water, which are the problems in your life, all right? That's typically what it turns into. So is the main point here to prescribe something or is it to describe something? Okay, if it's descriptive, what's the main point it's trying to describe? All right, so you, you're, Stephen is committed that Peter is trash, okay? Okay, man, I mean, he wouldn't say it that way, but Stephen is committed to the fact that this story is telling us that Peter doesn't have enough faith, all right? And that's good because I think that's how it's typically preached. Don't be like Peter and have, don't have enough faith which is always bizarre to me, and I'll explain why in a minute, all right? Come on, anybody else? Anybody else? Nobody else is willing to commit? Let me ask you this. Is the point of the story about Jesus, or is the point of the story about Peter? I mean, it's church, so the church answer should be, it's Jesus, but in preaching... It's always about us. <laughs> okay, come, come on. True? Right. We say it's about Jesus, but it's about us. All right? So if it's about Jesus, what would be the point of the story? Say it? Okay. Or what would be another way of saying it? His deity, right? I mean, he's demonstrating power over what? Nature. All right, okay, and then what's, how does the story end in verse 33? They worshipped him. So the end of the story is they're worshipping him. So you could say, is the point of this story simply a descriptive historical narrative to say, hey, people, Jesus is more than just a man. He's more than just the son of Joseph and Mary. There's something different about him, right? He is Lord, he is king, he is sovereign, he is God. Possibly. All right. Well, let's go through this. I want to look at it, looking at these two elements of fear. And I want you to really, really think about this. Right. The two accounts of fear. All right. The first account of fear shows up in the disciples. Right. So the disciples are there. They're in the midst of this wind and and waves. And please note verse 25 in the fourth watch of the night. Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Now, when I first read the story like 50,000 times, I didn't give much account or much thought to the fourth watch of the night. I didn't. But one of the the listeners, or what I sometimes refer to the people who participate in the Bible study exercise, one of the students emailed me and said, hey, that fourth watch of the night Within Judaism, within the Jewish culture at that time, there was much superstition. That the fourth watch of the night, they believed the veil between the material and the spiritual was very thin so you could get the manifestation of ghosts or spirits or things like that. Now, we did a little bit of research on it. We don't know if we can be dogmatic because some sources don't put it at the fourth watch which the fourth watch, I believe, is like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., I believe. Others place it at midnight, like the third watch, which would be like midnight till 3 a.m., depending on how you break the watches down. All right, so, but the point is, this time of night, there seemed to be great superstition about things going bump in the night. But we can definitely know whether we can confirm that Because some people say, well, I don't think it's that. Whether we can confirm that, we can be dogmatic about this. What are they afraid of? Look at the verse. You tell me, based off the verse, not off any speculation, based off the verse, what are they scared of? They, and they, but the the thing is, they call it a what? Okay, or in other translations, do you get the NIV? Ghost. That's what I want you to do. They think it's a ghost. Now, the minute they think it's a ghost, you know you've now entered into the world of not biblical Christianity, right? Because what, well, what is a ghost? 
What's the definition of a ghost? I, not, not, a, what, not, not, not the typically. A ghost is typically a disembodied spirit, right? Okay, a disembodied spirit of someone who has died. Okay, well, you, you immediately know why that's not Christian, right? Because when someone dies, they're heaven or hell, right? Okay, of course. Okay, make sure you're scaring me there for a second. Everybody's like, well, what's the problem? Okay, that's not a Christian concept, right? That's a superstitious concept, right? That is the belief that there, now, it is a belief that there's something more to us than just our body, that there's a soul or a spirit, but the point is, is then because something goes wrong, then that soul or spirit can just float around, walk, you know, hanging out in the ocean, scaring people, okay? But that is clearly not a biblical concept. Everybody understand that? It's not a biblical concept. Biblical concept, when a person passes, they enter into eternity. They don't float around, right? Hanging out in your house or the, well, every hospital ever worked worked in, everyone, there's always some account that the hospital is haunted. Uh, If you work anywhere on a military base, usually there's some account of story that somewhere on the military base is haunted, okay? I remember when I worked in uh, security forces at Offutt Air Force Base, we were told, because there was a general who went into strategic command headquarters and killed himself, that the place was haunted, right? So me and my partner at about, I don't know, two or three in the morning, we, we go into the bathroom in strategic command headquarters and we say all the words that's supposed to bring the ghost back and we're recording it because we want to encounter said ghost and nothing happened. Okay. He kept thinking he heard something, but I'm like, because you convinced yourself. But I was like, there's no ghost. But okay, let's do it. I got no problem. Like, let's say his name five times and see if he shows up. Whatever. Okay. But the point is, that's, that immediately shows what? What does that show about the disciples? Now this, and again, we don't want to speculate. We're not, meta, we're not making anything a metaphor here. We're just being very honest with the text. It shows what? It does show fear. It shows the fear is based off what? Superstition. Okay, how do we define superstition? Someone look up superstition in English uh, dictionary. Really quick. I got to move quickly to try to establish this point. This one I think is simple. It's the second thing that happens with Peter that I have no clue what's going on. This one makes sense to me. How is superstition defined? Oh, are we not? Okay, well, it's a belief, right? It's a belief. It's an idea. It's a way of thinking. Everybody understand? Superstition deals with what? Your thinking, how you believe, how you perceive something. So let's do this again. And the first account of fear, let's do this. The first account of fear, what is the cause of their fear? The cause of their fear is incorrect thinking. Their thinking is wrong, therefore they are overcome with fear. So many times in the Christian life, we can be overcome with anxiety, worry, and fear because our thinking is incorrect about something. We don't think the correct way. We're not thinking in a biblical way. We're thinking in a non- they're Clearly, they're not thinking. I mean, they're out there, it's a ghost! Okay, clearly you're like, hey, everyone, everyone in the ship, calm down. It's not a ghost. Does that make sense? So the first account of fear, the cause of this fear is because of wrong thinking. So far, so good? What's the second thing that happens here in this account of fear? Look at the verse. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. The first thing is their wrong thinking. What's the second cause of their fear? Come on, it's right there. No, no, right there. We're still in the first account of fear. First account of fear. The the first reason that they're afraid, the disciples are afraid, is because of their wrong thinking. The text seems to indicate clearly their thinking is wrong because they think it's a ghost. But there's a second thing that's implied here. Not 
Who's literally walking on the ocean? Okay. Do they see that? But they don't know that it's him, right? They don't perceive Jesus. They don't see Jesus in the situation. They don't perceive him to be there. They don't even, they're not even looking for Jesus, are they? They're not looking for him. They don't perceive him. They have no, there's no consciousness of him. All they see right now is, that's a ghost. So the first reason for fear is wrong thinking. And the second reason for fear that sometimes happens to us in our life is where we don't perceive the presence of God in a situation. We just see the situation. What do they see? They think it's a ghost. Now, at this point, some people may think that their fear is connected to the storm. I don't think it's connected to the storm. They don't seem to be too concerned with the storm, do they? They may be irritated with the storm. They may be frustrated by the storm. They may be concerned, but they don't seem to be scared of the storm. I don't know why they're not scared of the storm. Maybe because they're fishermen and they're used to it, but they're in the ship. They don't seem to pre... But they see something walking and they're scared to death. So the first reason for their fear is what? Wrong thinking. Second cause for their fear? A failure to, or or I like the way Bobby just said it, they don't see Jesus, a failure to perceive the presence of God in the situation. They don't see God there. Now in our lives, when we don't, listen, when we have wrong thinking and we don't perceive God in a situation, then when we don't see God, what do we do in the situation? We worry and we have anxiety and we start trying to figure it out ourselves and we start thinking and we have this idea and this idea and this feeling and that typically only leads to more problems. Now, let me make it very clear. Seeing Jesus in the presence of a situation doesn't always make everything better because it, it does lead to many philosophical philosophical questions that nobody wants to deal with and the church never wants to deal with, but it's troubling, Right? If you're in a horrible situation and you're suffering, being abused, horrible things are happening, it doesn't make it all better just to go, well, Jesus is right there. It doesn't always make it better, but at least makes me understand that there's a grander, there's something bigger going on. My best example is when Job was suffering. Did he acknowledge God's hand in it? Yeah. He said, Who are we to receive the good things from God and not receive the bad? Meaning, he saw the bad things that were happening to him coming from whom? He didn't blame Satan. He didn't, he blamed, he knew God was responsible. Now, did that make him feel always better? No, but he knew what? That God somehow was involved in it. He saw God's presence in it. They don't see God. They see a ghost. The disciples of Jesus in a difficult circumstance, they don't see God, they see a ghost. That is like, it, that is so us. We don't see God, we see everything other than God. And when we don't see God, now, how is Jesus' presence in this? I think it's interesting, right? The, the verse begins in verse 14 with what? What happens in verse 14? Or, I'm sorry, chapter 14, is it verse, I'm sorry, 22. I'm sorry, thank you, thank you. Matthew 14, verse 22. Verse 22, what happens? Okay. Jesus sends them into the storm. I mean, he's omnipresent, I mean, he's omniscient, right? So he sends them there. So how is Jesus present in our and in, in, in horrible situations? He, who put us there? God puts us there because He works all things according to. His. Now, does that always make you feel better? No, it doesn't make me feel better. But I know there's something bigger than than me at work. I'm telling you, it does. I do not. I am not going to sell this like most pastors sell this. That oh, doesn't that make you feel so much? No, it sometimes bothers me and makes me upset. But Jesus is right there in the story, right? What's the second way he's present? Next verse. 
15. Or, okay. Chapter 14, verse 23. I don't know why I keep wanting to say verse 14 and 15. Okay, yeah, verse 23. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> me and numbers. Okay. He's praying. Now, we don't. Now, I know pastors love to preach this, that he's praying for the disciples. We do not know that. Right? I have no idea what he's praying about. Why do we not have any idea what he's praying about? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. But I know he's praying. Now, I can draw this conclusion. I do know from the scriptures that he does what? He lives to do what? To intercede on our behalf. So we do know he's praying for us. So here's the thing. Whatever situation we find ourselves, we have to avoid wrong thinking. So much of our fear, anxiety, worry, discouragement, depression comes from wrong thinking. Their wrong thinking is they see a ghost and they shouldn't even be thinking about ghosts, considering ghosts, or even looking for ghosts. Right? They, that, that shouldn't even be an issue. But it is. Our wrong thinking creates so much of our anxiety, worry, and trouble. Now, secondly, they don't perceive Jesus. But Jesus is present here. Number one, he's the one who sent them there. And number two, he's praying. Now, I don't know if he's praying for them. Let me make it very clear. But I do know he's praying for whom? Us. Because the, the scriptures tell us that he makes intercession for us, right? Right? Everybody knows that? Everybody understands that? Okay, third. What's the third way he's present? He comes walking in. He's in the midst of the situation. He's right there. So in our situation, Jesus puts us in it. Jesus is possibly praying for us in the midst of it, and Jesus is present in it in some way, shape, or form. We may not perceive it, so what's our job? Our job is to perceive his presence in it. And not forget his presence because when we, listen, when we have wrong way of thinking and we ignore his presence, what do we end up doing? There's a ghost! We, we, we know we just start seeing the wrong thing. We see what's not there. We, we start having all kinds of fear and worry and anxiety. And I don't know, I, I, am I, am I, does no one here ever have any fear, worry, or anxiety? I'm assuming a lot of you do, Right? So this is, this is giving us a biblical account. So that, that first thing of fear. So let's go through. The first account of fear. What causes their fear? Two things. Wrong thinking and not perceiving Jesus present. Does that make sense? Right? We could add a... Well, we'll just go with those two. I could add a third one, but that's okay. Those are the two main causes. All right? So what do we have to do? We have to ensure that our thinking is correct. And we have to see the presence of Jesus. How is Jesus present in every situation? He put us in it. He's praying. And he's present some way, shape, or form in it. Does that make sense? All right. So that's fear. That, that one is simple. It took a little longer to walk y'all through it, but that one is simple. But it is, that's, that's just straightforward. Does, that, does everyone feel like that comes straight from the text? Right. Do you think that's being fair and accurate to the... T I think it is. Now, here's where I don't have a clue what's going on. What is happening, I do not understand. Oh, and please note, though, what is the... I just, I love this, verse 27, all right? And I, I, some of this stuff, I'm just... A lot of this is just, I'm just reviewing all of the podcasts that I've done on this. This is part 15, 16. So there's like 16 hours of teaching on all of this. But straightway, Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. So what is the solution? What is the solution to this first account of fear? It is I. The first solution to the first account of fear is to recognize and see Jesus in it, to think about the situation in light of who he is. It is I. Don't be afraid, it is I. That's the solution for us, right? We have, to, we have to think biblically, right? We have to have the right thinking, and we have to perceive Jesus and his presence. Does everybody see all of that in the text, right? Do we, do, do we need to walk through that one more time? 
All right, let's go through this again, all right? What is the cause of the first account of fear? What are the two causes of fear, or what are the two causes, or two reasons for them fearing in the first account? Wrong thinking and not perceiving Jesus. All right? Everybody got that? So, what are we to do? We are to change our way of thinking that we're thinking biblically. Everybody got that? Yes? And that we are to perceive Jesus. How is Jesus present in this situation? He put, his, put them in it, puts us in it. Okay, there's prayer and he's present. And what is the solution to this first account of fear? It is I. That's the phrase, it is I. Hey guys, it's me. It's me. It's me. And when, when we see Jesus, that should correct our thinking and we then ha- should have the right perception. Perfect makes perfect sense. Now, I don't know what's happening next. Because Peter looks out after he hears this and Peter comes up with this brilliant idea. (laughs) I don't know what in the world he's thinking here. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. What, does anybody know what, what is happening here? I do not understand this. This is the most baffling verse. I I always say Genesis 1-1 is the verse that to me breaks my brain and I don't understand anything. This one is so confusing. Does anyone else find this confusing? No, that's not confusing. That makes perfect sense. They're still fearful, worried. I mean, what would would be your response? Hey, if it's you, Jesus, get inside the boat and stop the storm. Who in their right mind would say, hey, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come to you. I mean, right? Who in their practical mind? You're in a boat. It's getting all tossed around. Hey, it's you, Jesus. Tell me to come to you. Okay. I mean, like, who does that? Am I the only one who doesn't perceive this? I I mean, that makes no sense to me, right? Hey, if it's you, Jesus, tell me to come to you. No, hey, if it's it's you, Jesus, do you think you can speed up a little bit and get here to the boat? That just makes no sense to me. I don't understand that at all. Like, what is happening? Like, if I was in the boat, I'd be like, oh, Pete, I'd have thrown Peter off the boat. I'd be like, just what are you doing? Jesus, forget Peter. He's drowned. I need you to get here. I, I know. I, I always find it funny how when, when Christians read the Bible, sometimes they don't see. It's like we're we're unwilling to see the absurdity in the text. That's absurd. What are you doing, Peter? Stop talking. Now, I do think it's somewhat consistent of Peter's character. What's the one thing we see about Peter constantly in the text throughout the Bible? What do you think? I mean, if there's anyone here who's ever read the Bible, okay, what, 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 what do we see about Peter constantly? Okay. He always wants to do something. He's always talking about what he will do. He's always talking about what will happen. He's the one always trying to act, Right? Hey, he's always the one. Let's do this. Let's do that. I'm going to do this. going to do that. Okay. And like, for example, he's the one who tells Jesus what's going to happen. Jesus, I'm going to be crucified. Absolutely not. You will not. He rebukes God. I mean, that's insane. After he just confessed that you are the Christ, the son of the, he literally just confesses that you're Christ, the son of the living God. And then the next minute he pulls Jesus aside like, you will not die. What in the world? Did you not remember your confession five seconds before? But he's always got to be in charge of the situation. He's always going to speak up. And then when Jesus says people are going to deny him, not me. I will not. I would die for you. He always saying what he's going to do, right? When they came to get Jesus. When they came to get Jesus, he pulled out the sword off someone's ear. 
When everybody else is like, uh-oh, they got Jesus. I'm, I'm getting out of Dodge. I'm going to hide. Peter's like, I'm going to follow. He's got to do something, right? And then Mr. Brave, a young girl's like, hey, don't, aren't you, I don't know what you're talking about. He's always doing, acting, acting, acting. So Peter's the one who feels like that, here's the situation, I got to do something. I got to do something. I can't just sit in the boat and wait for Jesus. I got to go do something. Now, I'm not saying that's the cause of his fear. I just think it gives us a little bit of insight. I think that this is him. And we can, some of us can relate to this, right? Some people went in this situation. What do we want to do? Do something. I would have been like, hurry up. Hurry. I would have just been, yeah. Could you run? Uh, it's, it's wonderful that you can walk on water, but I really need you running on it. Uh, I guess I'm the only one. I guess all of y'all would have been spiritual and just been like, oh, okay, I don't know. I would have been like, we're going to die. But Peter's like, hey, I'll come to you. Okay, so that, that's already confusing enough. Now, look what happens. And then Jesus says, Come. And then Peter doesn't even seem to blink an eye. He comes down out of the ship. He walks on the water to go to Jesus. Okay. Is anyone baffled by this? If If it's already blowing your mind that Jesus is walking on the water, now Peter is walking on the water. Now, Now, not picking on Stephen, because Stephen just gave the answer that everyone always gives. Stephen talked about how that the text is about Peter's lack of faith. And Peter always gets kind of blasted for having the lack of faith. But I've never seen anyone who blasts Peter for a lack of faith walk on water. Yes? I mean, that's got to be, I mean... Right? Is the walking on water a result of Peter's faith? Or is he walking on water because Jesus is allowing him to walk on water? That's a big theological question. Why is Peter walking on water? Now, you could argue later in the text it's going to prove because Peter's faith. But that's where it gets the story will get really confusing. But he's walking on the water. Right now, this is going to get us. So he's what we don't know how far he makes it away from the boat. He seems to be somewhat far from the boat because when everything goes wrong, he doesn't feel he can get back to the boat and he starts screaming for help. Right. So I don't know how far he makes it out, but he makes it a little ways out, which is an amazing thing. Right. And then what happens? Next verse. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid And beginning to sink, he cries saying, Lord, save me. Here's fear number two. Now, what was fear number one? They thought they saw a ghost, right? Wrong thinking, and they don't perceive Jesus. Fear number two is what? What causes fear number two? What what, what do you think is the, the reason for this fear? Okay. Okay. So uh, people are saying his. The, now I just want to make sure, sure we understand the, the 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 practical reason for the fear is the reality of the storm, right? Now I some I, I, I that's why I believe the first fear had nothing to do with the storm. Does everybody understand that? I don't believe the first account of fear had anything to do with the storm. I know you can make an argument. Well, if Peter is scared of the storm here, then clearly the disciples were scared with the storm earlier. But I, I'm going to disagree. I'm just going to disagree with that, right? Because the text places all the fear on what? They think it's a ghost. Why would now? Why would Peter now be scared of the storm? What? He's not in the boat. Okay, he's not in the boat. Clearly, the, the fishermen felt somewhat, I don't think that they were that, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. I just don't think the text tells me they're scared of the storm. 
In fact, if Peter was scared of the storm, thank you. Uh, if Peter would have been scared of the storm, why would he be even suggested getting out of the boat? He doesn't seem that he was that worried about the storm. But now that he's not no longer has the security of the ship, and now he looks around and realizes, where am I? Now he's, he's scared. So, is the cause of the fear the storm? I think it is. Yeah, the text seems to indicate that. Yes. The cause of the fear is he left the ship. Okay, which, why? Okay, Peter, it's your own fault. So he, he left it. Now, typically, what we want to say here is, Here's what happens, and, I, and, and I'm not going to completely deny this, that when, whenever we're in the midst of our circumstances, when we see the circumstances more than we see Jesus, we can be overcome with fear. I, I, I got no problem with that, right? It kind of goes with the first point, right? They had wrong thinking. They didn't perceive Jesus. Here, Peter takes his, percept, his focus off Jesus and puts it on the, on the circumstances. Okay, I think when we see the circumstances, we can be overcome because we forget. What do we have a tendency to do when we see the circumstances? Forget Jesus. So I think, I think maybe there's an allegorical way of looking at that. All right, but here's what I'm just, I'm confused by. All right, so just watch what happens. Immediately, uh, Peter, after he's afraid, what does he say? Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now please note, this is clearly an indication that Peter lacked what? Jesus' Jesus' words here seems to put it clearly into effect. That Peter lacks what? He has little faith. And that he did what? He doubted. He had little faith and that he doubted. Is the cause of Peter's faith, or is the cause of Peter's fear, is it because he took his eyes off Jesus and saw his circumstances, or is the cause of his fear is because of having little faith and doubting. Now you could you could argue the two are connected, right? But what do you think? From the text, what would be the right way to say? Peter feared because he had little faith and doubted. But you, do you see why this is perplexing to me? What is confusing about that to you? He literally was walking on water. If that's little faith, then for crying out loud, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. I mean, if, if, if y'all don't, some, maybe y'all don't see the, the, the issue here. I see the issue here. I mean, hey, if you think that you've got that much faith, look, next time I go on a cruise, I'll throw you overboard and see how far you can walk. And we all know that you're going to do what? But still it requires faith. Right? So you're telling me he had enough faith to walk on water, but that was still little faith. I don't know, am I I'm the only one confused by this? I've read this a hundred times. Like, that makes no sense. Jesus, what are you talking about, little faith? Nobody else got out of the boat. Nobody else got out of the boat. Now, if you see, so you see now what, what, this, what this can turn into now, right? This can turn into a very discouraging text of Scripture. Well, one, it would call into question the amount of faith any of us have. If like if Peter doesn't have enough faith, then who are we, right? And number two, do you see how discouraging this could be? Hey, 
The reason you're upset, the reason you're fearful, the reason you're filled with worry and dread is because you don't have enough faith. If you had more faith, you could walk on water like Peter did for a couple of minutes. But that would seem to tell me, well, wait a minute. I never will have enough faith as Peter had. He literally got out of the boat. So now if you're telling me, this would be, this would throw just a million pounds of guilt upon everyone. Hey, you have fear, you have doubt, you have worry, you have anxiety. Oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? You start having the right kind of faith and you'll stop doubting and you'll stop having fear. You see how that, you see how it can be used that way? Isn't that how it's preached? Well, I would raise my hand. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Back off. Because if Peter, if Peter's faith wasn't enough, then I'm never going to have enough faith. Do you see how I cannot avoid reading it that way? Peter literally got out of the boat, ladies and gentlemen, and he gets rebuked for not having enough faith. That's mind-blowing to me. That's the most confusing thing in the world. Right? That would be like me, like we're, we're, we're at some work project and I'm just laying there resting. I'm just laying there sleeping. After about eight hours, I wake up and I'm like, What's the problem, Bobby? That's as much as you can get done? Bobby's the one actually doing something. So why would he be rebuked for not work? Hey, your work ethic is garbage. You don't work enough. He was doing something. The rest of the disciples are just hanging out in the boat. Okay. Right, but I'm saying, but it's a rebuke in the sense that if, you're, if we look at the story as the way to overcome your fear, worry, and anxiety is to have enough faith, the, it would become a rebuke because how could I ever have the, enough faith if Peter didn't have enough faith because he's the one who got out of the boat. Do you see, do you see my point? That, that is, y'all are all looking at me like I, I'm, I'm like you're a cow looking at a new gate. Like what, what's... Like everyone understands? Does anyone, does anyone else ever, does anyone understand? Like does this, not, does this just make perfect sense to you guys? I am baffled by, so does everybody understand what I'm trying to say? If we preach this text as, hey, 2023, you can overcome fear, worry, anxiety, and doubt, and depression if you'll simply have enough faith. And you won't doubt. And everybody will hear that sermon and say, amen, and then walk by going, that's a good sermon, pastor. And then go home. But nobody on the way home would be like, uh, wait, I'm supposed to have enough faith so I won't have any worry or doubt. But the guy in the story who didn't have enough faith had more faith than I've ever had in my entire life. So what hope is there for me? Does, does everyone see that, that that concern? So what's the possible solution here? I don't know what the possible solution is here. So I threw out an idea, and I'm not saying this is perfect, but I'm just going to throw an idea. When we talk about faith as Christians, Right? Theologically speaking, do we believe there's only one kind of faith or do we believe there are two kinds of faith? I'm not saying this fits the story. Just stay with me theologically. What do we think? All right? Okay, well, okay, good. That, that's a good question. What, what kind am I talking about? All right, let's start here, all right? For us... In a, ref- in a church who holds to a reformed soteriology, we believe that there is a faith that saves, a saving faith, yes? Okay. That, what is the origin of that saving faith according to a reformed theology? God gives us faith. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. What is the gift of God? 
the grace and the faith. That faith is what saves me, right? That's a saving faith. That does not originate inside of me. I don't produce it. I don't, I don't, I don't exercise it. It's just given to me. The reason I believe is because belief was given. Not because, now, in other traditions, semi-Pelagian, Arminian, they believe faith originates where? Us. We have it. We exercise it. We, we just grab on to it. Right? That's a completely different perspective. Now, because we believe saving faith is granted to us, what do we know about that saving faith? What are some characteristics of the saving faith that God gives to us? You, you never thought about the characteristics of the saving faith that's been given to us? All right, I'll just help you out. It's obviously sufficient. That's pretty good. What else? Oh, this is bad. We're going to have to go back and do a a course on Christianity 101. All right. It's obviously a sufficient faith. Would you not argue it's a sustained faith? It's not going to go away. Because it was given to us by God. We're not going to lose it. We're not going to throw it away. We're not going to cast it. We're not going to deny it. It's going to be ours, right? It's a sustained faith. Why is it sustained? It's not us. It's not us. We don't have anything to do with this faith. It doesn't, it doesn't like, oh, well, I have it. I lost it. I got some more of it. I need, it's there. It's good. That's my saving faith. Yes, that is saving faith. Okay, saving faith, it's there. Does that make sense? Okay, now, what is a second possible kind of faith? Okay, what would we call this? We know there's a saving faith, right? Because we believe it's given to us by God. What would this second kind of faith be possibly called? Okay, someone called it a practical faith, okay. What would be another word for it? I think practical is good. Okay, a working faith. I think this is a faith that originates from where? Within us, a personal faith, and this faith is built on what? What are, the th- what are the things that add to a personal faith? Okay? We could say experience, all right? We'll say experience. What else? Oh, okay, good. All right, God's word. I read it. Trust, belief. Try to understand it. Try to believe it. That's all personal. Why? Why do, and what's the, what's the characteristics of a personal faith? Okay? Okay, a personal faith is, well, it's, put it this way. Is it, d- does it, uh, is it consistent? No, it's inconsistent. What else about a personal faith? By no means is it perfect. It's not consistent. And there can be some what? Times of great doubt. Agreed? I mean, I, I just, I'm going to argue for a personal faith that exists that's inside of me. It's me trying to live out my Christian life, right? I believe. I mean, do you not ever like, look, do you believe God is eternal? Do you believe God is all powerful? Now, it's one thing to believe that what? Theoretically, sometimes in practice in life, it, it, we, it's all over the place. It's, is it, put it this way, personal faith is messy, is it not? Right, or, right. So many times in a situation, in a personal way, I I can say all day long, look, I can quote the theology, but man, I'm like, I don't know where God is. Now, that has nothing to do with my salvation, because my saving faith came from where? God, it's perfect. 
So in this story, Peter lacks faith, but in a sense, what happens? He's still saved. God still saves him, right? He's sinking. He's still saved. So my personal faith, I can lack, I can, I can struggle, I can, but my saving faith will always save me. But the personal fluctuates. Now, I'm not saying this perfectly fits the story. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to process this, right? How can someone have the faith to get out of the boat but then sink five seconds later or 10 seconds later or 30 seconds later or a minute later. It's not much later, but he sinks. It sounds like a very much a personal kind of faith. And that personal faith is all over the place, right? Like on one minute, you're like, I can do it. And the next minute, you're like, I don't know what's going on. Does that make sense? The saving faith, think of it this way. The saving faith is good enough to walk on water. Metaphorically speaking, right? Why? Because it's perfect. It's a faith given to me by God. In other words, not only can I walk on water, I can stand before God and be declared perfectly righteous and holy. It's a saving faith. But my practical faith is always a train wreck. It's always messy. And Peter does this constantly, right? I will die for you. And then a young girl's like, I don't know Jesus. How can you do that? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. No, you're not going to die. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. Peter, what in the world are you talking about? Is he not all over the place? Just like whom? Us. So I think that there's an element here where you have, this is the practical faith. Now when it comes to practical faith, now this is important and we're going to have to stop. I I still don't have all the answers to this, but I just wanted to spend another hour talking about it. And I figured y'all hadn't listened to the podcast, so I figured that this would be a good place to do so. All right. So we we have, I'm so... I'm so baffled by this, but I, I, this is the only way I can understand this. The second case of fear, the second case of fear, we can all agree is caused by Peter seeing the reality of the storm. He sees the reality of his circumstances. And we, can, we all know what seeing the reality of our circumstances can do to us, right? It can cause fear, anxiety, and worry, right? Doubt and everything else. All he sees is, look, what in the world's going on? And our practical faith, and our practical faith, we can one moment be ready to hop out of the boat, and the next minute all we can see is our practical situation, and then we, our faith loses it, we, we doubt, and we despair, and we will start to sink. So, on one hand, we've got to be really careful here, right? But I want to make sure you understand this, that I... This text is almost impossible not to heap some guilt upon us, right? Because in a reality, this is, the text is kind of saying the reason we sink is because we lack faith and we doubt. But make sure we understand this. That is only referring to our, I think it's only referring to our practical faith, not our saving faith. Because this is what sometimes, and probably some of you have said this, well, how can I even be saved if I'm doubting God here or I'm afraid of this or I'm worried about this? Well, there's a difference. Your saving faith has nothing to do with you. But your practical faith does. Practically, I can not focus on Jesus, I can just see my circumstances, I can doubt. But what will I know? That even if I'm doubting, and even if I'm sinking, and even if I'm going under, and I just doubt God, and I don't know where God is, and I think God left me in the storm, and I don't know why he put me here, and I'm mad, and I'm upset, what's the one thing I can count on? Look, look at the story. He saved him. He saved him. Meaning, my salvation is not dependent upon what? My practical faith. 
Praise God. But sometimes we, we feel like, well, how can I be saved? Because I don't know if I trust God for this. I don't know if I can trust God for this. I doubt God in this. I don't see God doing this. We, we can doubt. Look, if you, if, for anybody who says you can't doubt, it's just, it's a lie. We doubt all the time. But who will be there when we're doubting and sinking? Because our salvation is based off him, not us. So, let's try to do this. The first fear, what was caused their first fear? Wrong thinking, and they didn't see Jesus. Right? They didn't perceive it. So we have to correct our thinking. We can't have superstition and and conspiracy and nonsense clouding our thinking because our thinking is wrong. We have to have a biblical way of thinking, right? And then we ha- what do we have to do? We've got to perceive Jesus. And how do we perceive Jesus? He sovereignly places us in every situation we're in and that he's praying and that he's present in some way, shape, or form in the midst of it. And we have to perceive him there. Does that always make everything better? Does that lead to more questions than answers? Absolutely. But we have to, because if we don't do that, then what do we do? We start seeing things in an incorrect manner. Put it this way. What's the answer to the first fear? It is I. Jesus is the ultimate reality, and for us to perceive reality, we have to perceive Jesus. If we don't perceive Jesus, we don't perceive reality, so we start seeing ghosts. Does that make sense? Once we lose sight of Jesus, we lose sight of reality. And we we watch a culture that rejects God and they create their own reality, right? Okay, I mean, that's what we see. The second fear is caused by, is the case of Peter, and it's caused by what? Now, you could, part of me wants to blame Peter, right? I'm like, well, if you just stayed in the boat, you wouldn't have had this problem. But it's caused ultimately by Peter's what? having little faith and doubting Jesus because he sees the reality of the circumstances above Jesus. And we can all face that. We can all see that. And I don't, but I don't want it to just become, a, I, want, I want you to see is that what we're seeing Peter acting out here is the reality of his practical faith. And our practical faith leads us, what happens to us plenty of times in our practical faith? We doubt and we have little of it. But the good news is, did Jesus say, hey, Peter, you better come up with some faith or you're going to die. He grabbed him, put him in the boat, and they did what? Worshipped him. So we worship Jesus for the faith given to us that saves us. And we hope that over time we can develop a more, a stronger, practical faith. But I, I just, I, don't, I have a hard time saying, hey, people, have the right kind of faith. Because Peter didn't have, I mean, I just, I don't understand. Like, if Peter didn't have enough faith, what am I supposed to do? Because I, I, there's no way I'm ever going to have that kind of faith. Nobody ever has. You ever, ever heard anybody else walking on water? Okay, so he's walking on what kind of water? Literal. Not metaphorical. He's not walking on the storms of life. He has enough faith to walk on physical water. And he still has not enough faith. So what does that seem to say about something? That our practical faith will probably never be sufficient. is the possibility that the entire point of Matthew 14, uh, verse 22 and following, see, I remember verse 22, verse 22 to 33, I'm just going to end with this. Is it possible that the whole point of the story is whether you're in the boat or whether you're outside the boat, you know what's always going to be true of us? We're not going to think right. We're not going to perceive right. And we're always going to have insufficient faith, practically. But what is true, but, but what is true is that Jesus will always be sufficient. It, you think that's possibly the point of the story? 
The disciples, wrong thinking, don't see Jesus, they think it's a ghost. Does Jesus abandon them? No. Peter, he sees the storm and forgets Jesus, has little faith and doubts. Both demonstrate an insufficiency. But who ends up in the boat anyway? Jesus does, right? He ends up in the boat. What else, is, what else does it say when he ends up in the boat? He calms the storm, does he not? All right, so maybe the point of the story isn't about us having more faith. Maybe the point of the story is that whether we're in the boat or outside the boat, we're always going to think wrong, have the wrong perception, and have little faith. But Jesus is sufficient to come to us in the storm, save us, put us in the boat, and calm the storm. So maybe the point of the story is not about us and what we need to do, but it's about worshiping the one who is sufficient when we are not. And guess what is always true of everyone in this room? You're either going to be seeing ghosts where there's no ghost. You're not going to see Jesus in it. You're going to forget Jesus is there. Or you may get out of the boat and try, be trying more than Bobby's. Maybe Bobby's just going to sit in the pew and you're going to try. But you may get out there and you're like, ah, save me! Whether you're in the boat, outside the boat, we're all going to prove what? That we're insufficient. Maybe the point of the story is that we overcome fear by not looking to ourselves, trying harder, trying to come up with six ways to develop a more solid faith, but to trust in God and in the faith that he gave us in salvation. All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. I, I hope this will give much more discussion on this very interesting passage of Scripture, and maybe we've just found the purpose of this story, and it took us an hour to figure it out, but maybe, Lord, this will help us read this in a way differently than we have before, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...